0: Well, hello class and welcome to another episode of the TM245 Homiletics Podcast. Hope you enjoyed your week off without new lectures and were able to focus primarily on writing your sermons and evaluating your peers. Today, though, I am going to come back and provide you a little bit more information that will help you to preach your Old Testament sermons by giving you some tips on interpreting the Old Testament and on preaching from the Old Testament. Now, we've already talked some about preaching narratives and it's certainly the case that a substantial portion of the Old Testament consists of such narratives. However, it's also the case that poetry makes up a significant portion of the Old Testament, and so I want to spend a bit of time explaining some basic features of Hebrew poetry. If you'd like, you can follow along on PowerPoint, uh, PowerPoint 2.13, Preaching the Old Testament. Now, I know that many of you Um, will actually be familiar with this content from your two semesters of Old Testament. Uh, But some of you, it's been quite a while since you took Old Testament, and especially if you're a senior who only had to have one semester. So I want to make sure we cover this content first before we get to the preaching component. So the first thing to note about Hebrew poetry is that it is quite different from poetry that we might find uh, in English language poems today. One of the main differences is that rather than rhyme, uh, Hebrew poetry seems to be rooted in parallelism. Parallelism is a poetic style that structures every statement in two or three adjoined clauses, so clauses that are put right next to each other. Often, translators of the Bible in the Psalms uh, or in the prophets will set off these distinctive Uh, parallel sets of phrases through indentation. And more often than not, each parallelism makes up its own verse, though verses are notorious for not always making logical sense for where they are broken. Uh, And I'm not critiquing God or the inspiration of the Bible there. Recall that verses were a later edition uh, in the Middle Ages. Okay, so three forms of parallelism are the most common in the Hebrew Bible. And there's a bit of pushback here by Bible scholars about uh, how rigid these forms are. Is this something that the authors would have intended, or is this something that we can impose on the text in looking back? I think that debate is important for more technical, exegetical uh, papers, particularly at a graduate level. But if you're preaching, recognizing this parallelism can help you understand the text, uh, regardless of where we land on that question. So three types of parallelism. The first is synonymous. In this type, two clauses present the same idea in a slightly different way. The second type is antithetic, where the second clause presents an opposite theme to the first clause. And the third type is often called synthetic, where the initial clause is clarified by a second clause. Now one of the reasons for the debate here is that synthetic seems to be a bit fluid Uh, which has led some scholars to say maybe parallelism is not quite as universal as we might expect. But if you find something with synonymous or antithetic parallelism, most think that's actually there. So let me give you some examples, and I have these on the slides if you want to follow along, and they are color-coded. So here's some synonymous parallelism in Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41.11, the first clause, All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced second clause, those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. So the first and second clause restate the basic idea that God's opponents are going to go down. Uh, Here we actually see in Isaiah 41, 18, four parallel, uh, synonymous parallel clauses. I will make rivers flow on barren heights, that's one, and springs within valleys, that's two. I will turn the desert into pools of water, three, and the parched ground into springs. Each clause promises a similar outcome. There will be water in the wasteland. Now, why does this matter for interpreting uh, poetry in the Old Testament and preaching it? In this case, the questions that we're looking at are fairly straightforward. God's enemies being disgraced or uh, water coming into dry lands. It doesn't take much for us to understand that but sometimes we will be reading a passage and find that we're a little bit confused about what the reference of one clause is. If that clause is a part of synonymous parallelism, then you can read the next clause to understand what the first clause was actually about. Here's an example of antithetic parallelism from Isaiah 1:19 through 20. First clause, if you are willing and obedient you will eat the best from the land. Second clause, but if you resist and rebel, you will, be, you will be devoured by the sword. So, in this case, the first clause promises blessings for obedience and the second clause curses for disobedience, broadly fitting within what's often called a Deuteronomistic theology, which is particularly prevalent in books like Deuteronomy, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Samuel, but extends into other books in the New Testament like Isaiah one here. Now, how does this play out in preaching? Well, oftentimes an antithetic parallelism uh, can set you up pretty well for your application. If it names uh, blessings on the one hand and curses on the other, which is a fairly common feature, those can be the blessings and curses that you promise to your audience. However, be careful to recognize first that under the new covenant, we have forgiveness through Christ that may prevent some of these curses from occurring, some of these negatives. Um, and second, that things that are promised to the nation of Israel are not automatically promised or referenced to the church. They might merely be restricted to Israel, though they might also be prophetic and extend far beyond that historical circumstances. Something to keep in mind. A lot of times, antithetic parallelism won't directly relate to the consequence to the listener, though. So another thing that antithetic parallelism can do is help you to set up a nice contrast in your sermon uh, between the glory of God and the humility of man, for example. Finally, a few examples of synthetic parallelism in Isaiah 44. We'll just look at one in verse 9. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless clause two here builds on the idea of clause one. Not only are idolaters nothing, but their idols are worthless and nothing. Now here uh, we see a common Old Testament theme when it comes to idolatry, that you become what you worship, as G.K. Beale puts it. Um, So that could be a, a place to theologically unpack once you recognize that these two phrases are put in parallel to one another. I have a few exercises in the PowerPoints that you might consider trying to identify what sort of parallelism is there, but for our lecture purposes, I'm going to move on and talk more broadly about genres of poetry, or perhaps more accurately, uh, varieties of psalms. I'm drawing here on the work of Walter Brueggemann, Uh, who argues that there are three basic spiritual orientations of the psalms. And if you can understand these spiritual orientations, uh, then you can understand what the psalm is about. So the first form is a psalm of orientation. This psalm, Brueggemann says, is designed to give voice to a happy perspective when the world seems stable due to God's sovereignty. So you come into this psalm, you're praising God for all of the Uh, Good things that God has done for protecting his nation, for his many promises, and positive attributes. Well, how is this psalm used historically in Israel, and how is it used in our spirituality today? Brueggemann says that this type of psalm opens our eyes to see God as the author of stability. It gives us hope, and it provides social control. So, by social control, Brueggemann says... When these psalms name all the truths of God's sovereignty, they teach us how to think about God. When he talks about hope, he says that these psalms are designed to have us look forward to a future that we know is not all fully present. And we know it's not present because these are not the only sorts of psalms that we see in the book of Psalms. We also see those that are called by Brugman psalms of disorientation. Now, a psalm of disorientation typically raises a complaint to God based on uh, something that doesn't fit with the uh, typical understanding of God's sovereignty. So these might be the imprecatory psalms, which call out for judgment on one's enemies because of the evil that is being done, seemingly in contrast to the plan of God. These psalms would include things like psalms of lament, where the Uh, author is crying out to God in the face of suffering. Brueggemann says that such psalms of disorientation are helpful for a number of things, and I'll highlight two here. First, they teach us that all dimensions of human experience should be brought to God. Now, many of you were in my interterm class on the problem of evil, and this is something that I really emphasized in that class. The prescribed book of worship In the Bible of the Psalms used by Israel, used by early Christians, and ideally used at least in part uh, of Christian worship today, this inspired book allows us to sing to God not only about joyful things, but about sadness and doubt and anger and despair. There will be people in your congregations that experience any number of these emotions on any given Sunday. Everyone in your congregation will experience virtually all of these emotions at least once. So being willing to preach from the Psalms of disorientation is a service to your congregation by allowing them an emotional range in a worship context that will preserve that connection with God. One of the biggest problems that can happen in suffering is where... Um, someone is told that the emotions they're feeling are not spiritually appropriate. And occasionally that might be the case. Um, There are certain predatory thoughts and desires that would be wrong. There are certain um, desires for greed and excess that would be inappropriate. But there's a much wider range than we might admit. And if someone is suffering and being told that they cannot grieve, this might cause psychological distress And they might begin to associate Christianity with a religion that cannot reach them in their current emotional troubles. Or they might associate their current emotional troubles with sin to a larger degree than they should. Both of these things might eventually result in them leaving the church. So going way back to one of my early lectures, I suggested that in your preaching you should balance between targeting orthodoxy, right knowledge, orthopraxy, right action, and orthopathy, right spiritual experience of God. Within that orthopathy goal and your overarching preaching philosophy, keep in mind psalms like the psalms of disorientation so that you can speak to those in your congregation who are struggling. Don't only preach those psalms, but do preach them. Second, perhaps you're reading these psalms or preaching about them when you're actually Uh, In a fairly good context, you might be unaware of such suffering. These psalms, Brueggemann says, challenge us with the reality of pain and suffering when we are blind to it in the world. So we can come to church and use it as sort of a hood that we pull over our eyes that prevents us from understanding the suffering in the world around us. And Brueggemann says psalms of disorientation fight that. Finally, There what is known as the Psalms of New Orientation. These Psalms highlight God's new gift made to restore us in our lives, in our walk with Christ, um, after an experience of disorientation. So when David sings of deliverance from enemies, for example, this would be a Psalm of New Orientation. The New Orientation Psalms are helpful for testifying. They declare how God has brought us through times of trouble. They help us heal from experiences of disorientation. I would expect that many churches would do well after uh, being shut down for a long time through the COVID outbreak to begin preaching by focusing on these psalms of new orientation. We're disoriented. We've lost our community. We've suffered in various ways, uh, physically, health-wise, emotionally, through stress, economically, through lost jobs, socially, through loss of meaningful relationships, God can come in the midst of that and reorient us. Third, Psalms of new orientation return us to that state of stability found in the Psalms of orientation. You can see on slide 12, Brugman argues that there's something like uh, a pattern between these Psalms. You move from Psalms of orientation to disorientation, back to new orientation, and then into orientation again. Brueggemann would say that these psalms overlap with the events of the coming kingdom and the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Orientation, through the decline of the kingdoms, leads to disorientation, which, because of the return from exile, leads to psalms of new orientation. Orientation, among those following Christ, because of the crucifixion, leads to disorientation, but the resurrection restores us to a new orientation. A few more comments broadly on interpreting the Old Testament and preaching. First, I want to highlight a very ancient way of reading the Bible, and this is the so called fourfold sense of Scripture. Historically, Christians have claimed that there were four senses of the Old Testament text there's the literal, which is what the historical author intended to say to the original audience. There's the typological, which is how the text prophetically points to the New Testament, usually to Christ. There's the tropological, which is drawing out a universal moral principle from the text. And there's the anagogical, where the text prophetically points to the end times and the final consummation. So if you're preaching an Old Testament text, you might stick to the literal, This is what God was saying to Jeremiah, and this teaches us about God's character in this way. You might focus on the typological. This is how what God said to Jeremiah was only fulfilled later on in Christ. You might take a moral approach. This is how God's teaching to Jeremiah sets an example for how we ought to act today. And you might set an anagogical approach. This is how God's teaching to Jeremiah instills hope in Jeremiah's context. And here's how that teaching provides us hope in our modern context today. Each of these four means of interpreting the scripture provide one option for an application component of a sermon. I should note, though, that the typological and the anagogical approaches in terms of the actual exegesis of the text can be a bit more challenging except in those passages that we are particularly familiar with. One thing that might help you in these areas is to find where New Testament texts use the Old Testament text. So, if a New Testament text reads a passage in Isaiah as typological, it may give you some sense about how you can preach the same text in the same way. A few final remarks here. Not all... Um, texts in the Old Testament will have these four senses. For example, not all moral ideals of the Old Testament apply in the New Covenant. Uh, Avoiding wearing clothing of mixed fibers is generally regarded as something meant to establish the distinctiveness of the Israelites, um, but not thought to apply particularly to the ethics of the church today. Uh, Another point to keep in mind um, is that moral teaching should be an option but not the norm or else you might lapse into legalism. Now on your final two slides, I give you some questions that might help you think through these different senses as you're preparing your Old Testament sermon. However, as usual, if you have any questions, do please reach out to me and I'll be happy to work with you through the text. Um, These aspects of interpretation might be A little bit easier, actually, to find in some of the older commentaries I've provided to you than they would be to find in the more modern historical critical commentaries that make up the bulk of those resources and maybe. So the good news is, this is one area where you might be better off after quarantine than you were beforehand. So those are some initial thoughts on how to preach the Old Testament and how to interpret it. Hopefully they help you. All the best as you're writing your sermon, and until next time, be well.